my dear friends, the last time uh, we were together, uh, I was talking a little bit about the 14 trainings of our order. And uh, in Buddhism, we have five precepts. All the Buddhist schools of Buddhism have five precepts. And their guidelines, uh, they're considered to be ethical guidelines. Thich Nhat Hanh looks at them as being uh, protections for our consciousness, that they're guidelines to help us to... Um, uh, to remind us to be mindful, and um, that any choice or decision we make, we need to make with the uh, awareness of what choice can I make that's going to cause the least amount of suffering for myself and everybody else. And if we consistently do that, we create a lot less unwholesome karma in our lives, a lot, of, a lot less unwholesome energy that we have to go back and undo things because of our, make a, a lot fewer mistakes. So uh, they're basically guidelines and protections for our consciousness. Um, in our order, uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, during the Vietnam War, uh, he and a group of six other monastics got together, and they were feeling um, uh, like it didn't make a lot of sense for them to stay in the monastery when the whole country was exploding. And they wanted to figure out some way they could directly help uh, and still maintain their monastic vows. And up until that time, that had not been done. So uh, they got together and wrote up 14 precepts that, uh, for engaged practice, where they thought that uh, uh, they could try to live by these precepts and be in the world and still practice as monastics. So those have become the basis of our order. Um, they're called the 14 Mindfulness Trainings. And at the time, they decided that uh, they would try them out, and if uh, they worked after 10 years, they'd share them with other people. So that's what they did. Uh, last time we were together, and you can tell that they've been informed by the war. Uh, the first three, the last time we were together, I think we covered the first four of them. And just as a review, I won't read the whole thing, but I will at least give you a flavor for what the other trainings were. The first training is on openness, and um, it says, uh, we are committed to seeing the Buddha's teachings as guiding means that help us to develop our understanding and compassion. They are not doctrines to fight, kill, or die for. We understand that fanaticism in its many forms is the result of perceiving things in a dualistic and discriminative manner. We will train ourselves to look at everything with openness and the insight of interbeing in order to transform dogmatism and violence in ourselves and in the world. So um, right there it gives you a little flavor for um, uh, the fact that they were looking deeply at the causes and conditions for war. The second is non-attachment to views. And um, this is the ground for... Um, just about everything. Uh, our, uh, however we've been conditioned in this lifetime, we've developed habits of mind. Uh, if, uh, uh, if I was criticized and judged a lot as I was growing up, and uh, you came into the room and said, um, gee, that's some jacket you have on, I would say, what's wrong with my jacket? You don't like my jacket? Who made you a fashion critic? You know, that kind of thing. I would have an attitude. And um, if I was raised in a way where I was uh, 
reassured on a pretty consistent basis that I was okay and uh, pretty lovable, uh, you'd come in and say, that's some jacket you have on. I said, thanks. It's that different. And what we don't realize is that our views are, um, are exactly views. We really believe our views are reality, that the way we see things is the way to see things. And that's normal, and everybody else is a little odd. So the difficult thing with our practice is to become mindful of the fact that we've all been conditioned, and we've developed habits. We've developed habits of mind, and we've developed conditioning that colors our perception of everything. And when we can do that, it helps us to, to see what kind of lens we're viewing the world through and not react. That they, again, it helps us to not be as reactive. Um, but non-attachment to views, um, it basically says we won't be, we're determined to avoid being narrow-minded and bound by present views, committed to learning and practicing non-attachment to views, and being open to others' experiences and insights in order to benefit from the collective wisdom. Um, we're aware that the knowledge we presently possess is not changeless, absolute truth. Insight is revealed through the practice of compassionate listening, deep looking, and letting go of notions, rather than through the accumulation of intellectual knowledge. Truth is found in life, and we will observe life within and around us in every moment, ready to learn throughout our lives. This is a very difficult practice. That's a very deep practice. Um, a lot of times we remain very attached to our views out of fear. Uh, we're fearful of what will happen if we don't get our own way. We have an idea of the way things should work out. And anybody that's uh, trying to make things work out in a different way, we get very upset with and feel very threatened by. And it brings up a lot of uh, strong emotions sometimes in us. We're in the middle of an election cycle. It gives us a wonderful opportunity to have a front row seat to attachment to views. This is... Uh, doesn't get any better than this. Um, third mindfulness training, freedom of thought. Aware of the suffering brought about when we impose our views on others, we're determined not to force others, even our children, by any means whatsoever to adopt our views. But I want them to believe exactly what I believe, and I want them to be a miniature one of me. Until they are, and then all the things I don't like about myself, I don't like about them either. That's where we get into trouble. Uh, we are committed to respecting the right of others to be different, to choose what to believe and how to decide. We will, however, learn to help others let go of and transform fanaticism and narrowness through loving speech and compassionate dialogue. And that requires deep practice for us to be able to truly listen in order to understand very frequently we'll still use listening as a manipulation. It's, uh, I'll pretend that I'm listening to you uh, so that you'll then feel that I really care about what you think, only to wait my turn to tell you the way it really is. And um, that's kind of, um, that's really not what deep listening is about. So uh, it has to do with really having a deep desire to understand this person and so we try to practice listening from a place of uh, being aware of when we're holding up a checklist and saying, I agree, I don't agree, that's right, that's wrong, that's good, that's good, in our own mind. Because when we do that, we've already decided what we know and what we think. 
and we're not open to learning anything. <laughs> All we want to do is see where do we where do we coincide and what am I going to argue with you about and how will I convince you that I'm correct about these other things that I believe. So deep listening is a wonderful practice of uh, uh, also to develop non-attachment to view, to be able to actually uh, think, hmm, maybe I don't know everything and this person might have something that I can learn from. And then when we can do that, it's amazing how much spaciousness can get uh, uh, established and wonderful things can happen in that space. Um, a number of you I know attended the Day of Mindfulness we had a couple weeks ago. And uh, I wanted to thank all of you who helped to create the conditions for that and to let you know how important it is for us to be able to provide that kind of energetic field for people. Because I get to hear feedback which people, other people don't get to hear. And uh, there was one woman who was at that particular day, had never been to a day before, a day of mindfulness, and she was totally astonished. She said, as the day went on, I could feel my heart opening and opening and opening. I felt so happy and so free. She was just euphoric. And she said she went home, and she's a woman who had uh, moved away from Rhode Island. I think she said it was like 30 years ago or 35 years ago. And she had recently moved back, like within the last couple years. And when she came back, she notified this a person who had been a friend 35 years before, but they'd had a major falling out and had not spoken for 35 years. So she notified her that she wanted to reconcile, that she'd like to get together and reconcile. The other person was not interested in doing that. And so she came to the day. She got into this very open-hearted space. She went home, and the phone was ringing. It was this woman that she had the falling out with 35 years ago. She said she picked up the phone, and they had a wonderful conversation. And they went out for coffee the next day. They went out kayaking together the day after, and they were looking at co-housing communities. <laughs> <laughs> now, George, is fear creeping up? <laughs> Slow down. Put on the brakes. You're moving too fast. No, I think they know each, they knew each other for 35 years. They were very good friends in the past. But the thing that, um, the reason I bring that up now is it's that spaciousness that I'm talking about. That as long as I'm holding on to that knot of resentment, there is, it's an energy that I project and it's felt. So it doesn't matter if I say all the right things to you, you can feel it, that I have this, uh, I'm protected and defended and distancing you. And uh, clearly she didn't have to do that. She was in a space where she could wholeheartedly be available to listen to this friend. And it's felt. It is absolutely something that is felt. So that's what our practice is about, is being able to transform uh, those obstacles in us, those places where we are uh, closed, our hearts are closed, to look and see. Uh, and clearly this woman had never done this before, so she was ready. I mean, um, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh says, uh, the kingdom of heaven is available to us. The question is, are we available to the kingdom? And uh, it's a matter of being open and being uh, available to take in and be available to transform those hard-hearted places in us, which is not easy to do. Um, 
So the fourth training was where we ended the last time. And the fourth training has changed quite a lot. It's evolved over time. And now it has a lot to do with uh, being aware of our own suffering. This training used to read that it was just, it will be open to other people's suffering and help other people as much as we possibly can, basically. Now it says, aware that looking deeply at the nature of suffering can help us develop understanding and compassion, we're determined to come home to ourselves to recognize, accept, embrace, and listen to suffering with the energy of mindfulness, to listen to our own suffering, just as we're talking about being available for other people. Uh, we will do our best not to run away from our suffering or cover it up through consumption, but practice conscious breathing and walking to look deeply into the roots of our suffering. We know we can realize the path leading to the transformation of suffering only when we understand deeply the roots of suffering. Once we've understood our own suffering, we will be able to understand the suffering of others. We're committed to finding ways, including personal contact, the use of telephone, which is what they did, uh, electronic, audiovisual, and other means to be with those who suffer so we can help them transform their suffering into compassion, peace, and joy. This is a very deep practice. This is really uh, sort of at the heart of our practice, really. Um, to be able, at the end of our Qigong, and I say uh, we're going to embrace the tiger, we're embracing all of ourselves, that all of the, we're considered to have 51 mental formations. We have anger, hatred, love, kindness, joy, uh, jealousy, everything. We have all the seeds of everything in our consciousness. Depending on which of those seeds we nourish is what manifests in our mind consciousness. And so our job is to be uh, wonderful, uh, very vigilant, mindful uh, keepers of the gates, all of our gates of perception, so we're only nourishing the most wholesome seeds in ourselves. But we don't try to get rid of all the seeds. We don't try to get rid of our anger. We don't try to get rid of our jealousy. We try to befriend it. We try to be able to uh, embrace it, acknowledge it. Hello, anger, my little friend, there you are again. And look deeply to understand it. When we can get to the roots of it, and really understand what is this that's going on with me. Um, very frequently we find that we're time traveling, that um, it really is not much to do with the present, that the person in the present has just been the catalyst to bring up some kind of uh, uh, seed of suffering from way back. Uh, if I've been hurt in the past and I'm holding on to that, somebody can look at me crosswise and say just the right thing and boom. I'm reacting as if I, I mean, we always use the example of a, a family holiday dinner. Somebody can say the right thing, I'm 12 years old again, right? You just get transported in time. So uh, Thich Nhat Hanh has been uh, criticized sometimes for, uh, how can you be a Zen master? How could you call yourself a Zen master when you're doing this healing of the past? Uh, Zen is about now. It's about staying in the present moment. And he said, uh, the past is alive in every cell of my body. So I can easily be in the present moment and be healing the past. The past is available for healing and transformation in every moment. So uh, that's what we try to do is be aware that, oh, this doesn't have anything. I don't need to get my knickers twisted and upset with this person because this has not much. They're just the catalyst. The real healing has to do with the hurts that I'm carrying around with me from forever. 
And what I need to do is bring myself into the present moment, bring that little kid back into the present moment, and say, you're not three anymore. It's okay. We've got a whole bunch of ways we can handle this. You don't have to be afraid. Okay. And we can calm ourselves down and respond skillfully and effectively to what's happening in the present that way. The other way, we're, re we're reacting as if we were three. It's just like children getting in a fight all over again. So that's awareness of suffering. That's a big one. Uh, the fifth mindfulness training is healthy living, compassionate, healthy living. Aware that true happiness is rooted in peace, solidity, freedom, and compassion. We're determined not to accumulate wealth while millions are hungry and dying, nor to take as the aim of our life fame, power, wealth, or sensual pleasure, which can bring much suffering and despair. We will practice looking deeply into how we nourish our body and mind with edible foods, sense impressions, volition, and consciousness. We are committed not to gamble or use alcohol, drugs, or other products uh, that bring toxins into our own and the collective body and consciousness, such as certain websites, electronic games, music, TV programs, films, magazines, books, and conversations. We'll consume in a way that preserves compassion, well-being, and joy in our bodies, our consciousness, and in the collective body and consciousness of our family, society, and the earth. And this is a very full practice as well. And it doesn't mean that um, uh, you can't do anything that's any fun or you are going to be punished severely for the rest of your life. This is not what it's about. It's about exactly what I was just talking about, that we have six consciousnesses according to Buddhist psychology. They are the five senses, all of our five senses, and our mind. Those are the ways, those are the gates through which we take in the world. All of our experience comes through those six gates. And so our job is to be a good gatekeeper. And all it means is taking good care of our consciousness. It doesn't mean not watching television. It doesn't mean not going to websites. It doesn't mean, it means paying attention. What effect does this have on my consciousness? It doesn't mean, it just means that we are trying our best to be mindful. What is this doing to me? Um, and I've shared a number of times that for me that the most recognizable thing was when I first started practicing was that up until that time I thought, well, I'm a smart enough person. I can expose myself to anything. And I know, intellectually I know it's a movie. It won't bother me because it's a movie. And what I found was if I would watch a violent film, the next time I was in Manhattan I'd be paranoid. Like that. So I just found in very subtle ways and sometimes not so subtle ways it had a big impact on my consciousness. So it's just paying attention to, um, if I wake up in the morning and I haven't had a good night's sleep or I'm not feeling really well, to put on um, a 24-hour news station and to be bombarded with, and then this happened, and then this person blew three people away, and then this happened, and uh, all the blood and gore and uh, twisted uh, consciousnesses of people in the world, uh, it can really not be a good thing. I mean, that's not a good choice because what it does is it just depletes me even further. So it's not that I can't be aware of what's going on in the world. It's that I need to make good choices of what is my capacity at any time to take in that kind of information. And I need to limit what my gates are open to, uh, close the windows and the doors some days, and just take very good care of myself. Uh, 
but that's our job. In Buddhism, there are no absolutes. So that's really upsetting to a lot of people, that uh, if you want to be told what to do and what not to do, it's not here. It won't, you won't be told. Um, what we are given is the only absolute is that we'll experience consequences of whatever we choose to do. That's the only truth. So it's up to us to choose wisely. And that's what these guidelines are designed to help us to try to make some wise choices. Um, and for every person, that can be different. You can't say that never should anybody ever do whatever. It's uh, up to all of us to uh, really look deeply to understand the long-term impact of our actions so that we make choices that we don't have to spend the rest of our life undoing. We're doing our best to undo. Some of them are not even undoable. So um, that's how it works. And this is for compassionate, healthy living. Uh, sixth mindfulness training, taking care of anger. And I think I'll end with this one. <laughs> That's probably going to be plenty for people. Um, aware that anger blocks communication and creates suffering, we are committed to taking care of the energy of anger when it arises and to recognizing and transforming the seeds of anger that lie deep in our consciousness. When anger manifests, we are determined not to do or say anything, but to practice mindful breathing or mindful walking to acknowledge, embrace, and look deeply into our anger. We know that the roots of anger are not outside of ourselves, but can be found in our wrong perceptions and lack of understanding of the suffering in ourselves and others. By contemplating impermanence, we will be able to look with the eyes of compassion at ourselves and at those we think are the cause of our anger, and to recognize the preciousness of our relationships. We will practice right diligence in order to nourish our capacity of understanding, love, joy, and inclusiveness, gradually transforming our anger, violence, and fear, and helping others to do the same. <laughs> this is a very deep practice and it's always interesting to me because I can't tell you how many people have uh, come to me with this practice and they're enraged it brings up anger in people, which I think is kind of ironic uh, but they'll come to me and they'll go I've spent my whole life developing some assertiveness I was a doormat the whole time I was growing up I took all kinds of stuff from everybody and uh, I finally I finally learned how to stick up for myself. I've learned how to speak up. And uh, now you're telling me not to do or say anything. It's absolutely infuriating. And the interesting thing to me is that what I know from my own experience of, of dealing with my own mental formations is that when I am really agitated or I'm dealing with really strong emotions, um, I am not practicing deep listening. I am not practicing my, it all goes out the window, right? And that happens with this training, that people who get very upset with this training don't hear the rest of the training. All they hear is, we will do, we will not do or say anything. That's all they hear. The rest is lost. And this is what we do. When we're attached to a view, we only hear, it's like we're filtering out whatever doesn't coincide with what, we're, what our view is, like I said. 
It's a perfect example, and I see it very frequently with this particular training. So the rest of the sentence says, but to practice mindful breathing, mindful walking, to acknowledge, embrace, and look deeply into our anger. That's a lot to do. So all that it's saying is we will not do or say anything in that moment. That we will instead stop and breathe, walk, look deeply, and try to understand what's going on before we say or do anything. So it doesn't mean you never do or say anything. It means you postpone that activity until you get calm enough that you can do it effectively. Because what happens instead is most of us, like I said, it goes right to the limbic system, and we just react. And when we just react, we say and do things that cause more suffering to ourselves and the other person. We create, we can, we can use words that really kill another person's spirit. We use words that we can never take back. We use words that uh, we can regret for years afterwards. So to not do or say anything in the moment is a protection for ourselves. We're not doing the other person a great big favor. We're really helping ourselves. And then when we can spend the time really looking deeply to understand and we can calm ourselves down, we can then come back to that other person and have a reasonable conversation. In our practice, we have something called beginning anew practice, which means I would go to a person who upset me uh, and I would say, um, can we get together in a week and talk? And we would get together in a week, and then I would give them at least three things I deeply appreciate about them. You've been such a good friend. When I really needed a good friend, you were there. can't tell you how much I appreciate the fact that you've done this, 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 or whatever. But it has to be sincere appreciation. And then we offer them uh, beneficial regret. What I can see, I've looked at the situation. I know when uh, last uh, Friday we'd gotten into that argument, and uh, I've been spending a lot of time looking at uh, the part that I played in the difficulty. And what I could see is that I was carrying around a block of suffering about this, this, or that, and I know that I reacted. I wasn't very skillful in the way that I said or did whatever it was. Um, and I am sincerely sorry for that. Uh, but I needed to talk to you and let you know that when you say and do such and such, that's the response that I have. That's what it you. That's what you are nourishing in me. And uh, I just wanted to let you know that, so that you have a mechanism to actually um, uh, do something, to have it move somewhere, rather than you've hurt me. I'm going to hurt you. We're going to be at war, and then for 35 years we won't speak to each other. Right. So that's what we're trying to uh, to avoid. Um, we know that the roots of anger are not outside of ourselves. I hate that, don't you? <laughs> I really would love it to be the other person. You know, it's always so nice when it can be somebody else. Um, we know that the roots of anger are not outside of ourselves, but can be found in our wrong perceptions and lack of understanding of the suffering in ourselves and others. And that's what I've learned over a long time is that if I can restrain myself, if I can just not react in the moment, spend a little time with my own feelings, and spend a little time trying my best to look deeply and understand the other person, what I can see is they're suffering. 
happy people don't hurt people. <laughs> happy people don't say awful things to people. And so when I can develop my understanding of their suffering, it shifts my feeling toward that other person. Instead of being critical, judging, and harsh, and uh, just hating them, uh, it can help me to have some compassion. And it completely changes the possibilities between us, that exist between us. Um, let's see. By contemplating impermanence, we will be able to look with the eyes of compassion at ourselves and at those we think are the cause of our anger and to recognize the preciousness of our relationships. And that's what Thich Nhat Hanh always says. If the monks and nuns are getting arguments with each other, he'll bring them in and he'll say, okay, I want you each to close your eyes and I want you to envision this other person 300 years from now. And then he'll say, okay, you can open your eyes. And they open their eyes and he goes, now what was the problem? And suddenly it puts it in a different perspective. You know, when we really can live with the awareness of impermanence, every single thing is impermanent, including us. The people that we're now sitting with are impermanent. When we're in a conversation with another person and we can recognize this is a precious wonder of life that's totally impermanent. This might be the last time I ever see this person. It shifts how we interact. It changes the quality of the experience for us. And it could be true at any time. With that awareness, it definitely sharpens our, uh, uh, our perspective. It zooms out in our view. It helps us to zoom out a bit and get a bigger perspective. Uh, heavy things don't seem to get us quite as upset as they might if we were totally wrapped up in our in the other part of the anger is our ego to really believe that we take it right on if we're not on real solid footing somebody says something nasty boom we we have to defend and protect and da, 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 da. and most of the time if we look deeply it's because we've been humiliated in our lives or we've been hurt badly and uh, we don't want people to think we're stupid or we don't want people to think badly of us or da, da, da. It's all ego. And so somebody asked Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, when somebody insults you, what do you do? And he said, I look deeply at who's been insulted and then I'm completely free. Because there's no one to insult. It's only our ego. So when we can maintain the view, if we can maintain the perspective, uh, we can be free. We don't have to take the bait. That's what I like to do, personally. I can share uh, one of my practices, and that is that if somebody's uh, getting riled up or somebody's being nasty, I like to see a sign on their forehead, a little neon sign that says, don't take the bait, don't take the bait, don't take the bait. <laughs> like little LED lights coming around. <laughs> oh, whatever it takes to get us through the day. Um, but it is helpful. I find that to be very helpful for me. So I think that's probably enough for you to contemplate and practice with for several lifetimes. <laughs> it will be for me. I know that's for sure. Um, so anyway, it's great to be with you. Thank you so much for being here. We uh, In this meeting, we do a go-round. Uh, we call it Dharma Sharing. And uh, in Dharma Sharing, we just speak whatever's in our hearts right now, in this moment. 
We don't try to get in intellectual discussions about anything. Uh, we do practice deep listening, exactly what I was talking about. It's an opportunity for all of us to practice listening to whatever's being said, pay attention to our own minds with whatever judgments or criticisms are coming up. Um, when we can do this, the other thing before we leave this whole topic that I did want to be sure to mention was that when we get caught in our own anger, when we get caught in our ego, what happens is we can develop a kind of resentment toward this other person. What the other trick is that most of us like to do is to be reinforced in our own opinion. And so we want to collect a team. That if I'm upset, I want you all to be upset. <laughs> and this is what really can be totally destructive to a group of people. So if somebody's hurt my feelings, I want you all to hate them. I want you all to be angry with them. And so there's a lot of triangulation. There's a lot of talk behind people's backs. That's where the, the office gossip happens. And all it's doing is being totally destructive. It's not helping anybody, especially not us, because we don't feel good about ourselves. That's the price we pay for that. And we also pay a huge price in creating more. We're just creating more. So I wanted to add that. I always forget about that part of it, but it's uh, real common to most of us. It's like, I need to be reinforced in my opinion. I need to be uh, supported here. I want all the support I can get. So uh, we can do our best to look and see, am I able to contain myself? Am I able to be with my feelings? It's, it's one thing to talk to another individual uh, who's another practitioner and say, I'm having trouble working with my anger. And then we can have a constructive conversation but we don't get into saying so-and-so is a pain in the neck, and did you know what they did, and da 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 But for now, we'll end with just uh, inviting three sounds of the bell, taking nine breaths, enjoying every one of them.